Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A third of all the trees on earth are in the boreal forest, this band of kind of northern wilderness that often it, people don't really think about very much. Britain was a boreal nation. The tree line in the UK is, is Scotland, and the tree line in Europe is just across the top of Scandinavia. So most of Europe and Britain used to be in the forest. Hello folks, it's Jimmy Dote here. And welcome to another episode of On Jimmy's Farm. It's the podcast where we discuss environmental issues and also try and give everyone a little slice of the good life. It's quite a windy day today. Heading down to just check the cows. Had a busy, busy old week. Just finished my proof of my latest book, Tales from Jimmy's Farm. It's a celebration because this year we celebrate our 20th anniversary of being on the farm. So the book is a story of how we started as a rare breed farm and now as a farm and wildlife park. But enough of me and my book and what I've been up to, onto my fantastic guest. It is the wonderful Ben Rawlance. Now, Ben Rawlance is a former journalist. He's now an author and he also runs a fantastic organisation called the Black Mountains College, where he teaches everything about ecology and also the importance of positive relationships with nature. Now, Ben has just published a wonderful book called The Tree Line. And when we think of the environment, we always think about planting trees as a fantastic thing. And of course it is. But I didn't really think about trees in the wrong place can be an environmental disaster. Ben discusses this, but also Ben talks about trees moving. Trees moving north where they never really used to grow. And it's a real indicator of a big problem in our climate. So Ben and I have a fantastic chat. I hope you enjoy it. It's a wonderful book and I'll meet you all back here afterwards to look at the cows. So, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Nice to meet you. Now, your book is fascinating. It's something that I think, I suppose, forces the reader to look at environmental issues differently through the prism of trees. It's called The Tree Line, isn't it? Explain to me what the tree line is? The tree line is at its simplest, the growing limit of trees. So it's the place on earth where it's too cold or it's too dry or it's too high for trees to grow. Now, that sounds like a really simple thing. And if you look at the map, there's a line around the top of the world and there's a line somewhere about halfway up most mountains where trees don't grow beyond. 
But in reality, it's a whole zone. It's a transition zone with all sorts of very specific plants and ecosystems in different locations. And it's also a zone that is moving. Historically has moved whenever the ice came down, a bit like Etch-a-Sketch, all the way down to the tropics and then it went back again and it wiped the slate clean, particularly in the northern hemisphere. Then the tree line, the vegetation zone followed on the heels of the ice. And what we're seeing now is that that zone is on the move unnaturally fast. So if you think over time there have been 10, 20 ice ages and each time the ice and the trees have come down and then they've gone back again, a bit like breath, the planet breathing over millions of years. Now what we're seeing is the planet hyperventilating and the trees are zooming north. Instead of an inch every year, it's hundreds of feet every year. It's fascinating to think of trees moving because obviously plants do move over successions, over years. But the idea of the trees actually physically moving, I think a lot of people was like, well, what do you mean? They get up and move about? But you mean they spread over generations, don't they? And when we talk about trees in the environment, it's always about tropical rainforests, isn't it? It's always about tropical rainforests, a loss of tropical rainforests. But your work on the tree line, the, the northern forests, really puts them back into the importance, because we do focus a lot on the Amazon rainforest, but these northern forests are so important. And they're just much bigger. So there's loads more trees. There are a third of all the trees on earth are in the boreal forest, this band of kind of northern wilderness that often people don't really think about very much because it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. It's half of Canada. It's half of Russia. It's a big slice across Alaska. Britain was a boreal nation. I mean, we are, the tree line in the UK is is Scotland and the tree line in Europe is just across the top of Scandinavia. So most of Europe and Britain used to be in the forest. And it's only actually a very short space of time, which when we've cut it all down. But yeah, you're right. We always hear of this phrase, the lung of the world. But actually, in terms of kind of oxygen production, the boreal forest is far outstrips the Amazon and other rainforests. It's got, I think, a trillion trees. If there are three trillion trees on Earth, one trillion of them are in the boreal forest. See, that's incredible, isn't it? And I don't think most listeners would think of these areas being equally as important, if not more important, than the tropical rainforest. We really feature heavily on that. Uh, But your background isn't necessarily in conservation, isn't it? Tell us a bit about your history. I'm a journalist. I've worked in politics and human rights. And actually, my last two books were based in Africa. One was about war and deforestation in the Congo. And the other one was about drought and famine and refugees in the Horn of Africa in Somalia. And what I realized at the end of that work, this is about 10 years ago, was that the drought and the conflict in the Horn of Africa was being driven by climate change. The Sahel region is one of those sensitive parts of the world that first you can see the tremors of climate breakdown. So having done that, what I wanted to do was then go to another place where we could see climate change in action, where we could see real visceral impacts where people have been living with that history for many years already. And of course, as we all know, the Arctic has been warming faster and for longer than other parts of the world. So the Arctic, I thought, would be the place to look for these kinds of impacts. And as soon as I started looking, 
I came across the trees and I had, of course, heard about permafrost melting, the ice cap shrinking. These are sort of familiar metaphors. But this image of the forest zooming north and turning the white Arctic green was incredibly arresting. And I thought, right, that's what I need to look at. So that really got you involved in this bigger picture, the the tree line moving further north. And for the book, I mean, you went to some amazing places, Canada and Norway. Tell me a bit about going to Norway, because you went to meet the Sami people, didn't you? Yes. So they are, for those that don't know, one of the only indigenous groups recognised by the UN in Europe. And for 10,000 years, they have had a remarkably stable way of life, following the reindeer across the tundra from Sweden, Norway, Finland and Russia. And now, of course, chopped up into those different countries. But once upon a time, it was all Lapland. But that way of life is on its knees. And the enemy, if you like, is trees. So historically, the Sami relied on the birch tree for bark, for medicine, for poles to make their tents, for sleds, all sorts of implements within the kitchen and the household. But now the birch has become their enemy because it's wind pollinated. So every year, more and more birch trees are sprouting up on the tundra and the tundra is where the reindeer graze. Now, what the forest does is it catches more snow. The snow is builds up into these huge drifts that the reindeer can't get at the grass underneath. It also warms the soil, so it melts the permafrost and it encourages more growth, so you get more vegetation. And these, what used to be kind of broad plains of tundra where the reindeer would roam, are now thickets of birch, which the reindeer can't travel through. And The other thing that happens is that then when that snow all piles up, it melts underneath and it forms a kind of ice crust, which is a bit like a sort of lock on the grass. So the reindeer can't get to their grazing and they die. And in recent years, there's been thousands and thousands of reindeer dying. And the Sami way of life is really under threat. So what I was interested in was both the kind of practical environmental elements of how their traditional way of life was changing, but also the kind of environment, emotional and psychological effect of that. And to see these people trying to make sense of it, trying to grapple with it, kind of denying some of the science, overly optimistic about the prognosis, but also getting quite radicalized about the politics of their situation. And that, I think, is very interesting in terms of the lessons for the rest of us. Yeah, absolutely. And what you're explaining there is the front line of climate change. And it's something that I think the vast majority of us are totally unaware about. You know, the idea that you look at these tiny little islands in the Indian Ocean where the rising sea levels are going to cause devastation, or you look at the Sami people where the complete way of life that's been going for thousands of years is changing rapidly, but you'd never ever think it was down to trees because we always think of environmental issues being trees cut down, but this is trees growing and spreading. Yeah. And because the trees are moving north because conditions are now unfavorable. They want to get up to a cooler climb, don't they? So they're moving further north. But I think it's almost counterintuitive that, you know, trees are causing the problems. But it's this relationship with reindeer that have been so important to the Sami people. It is counterintuitive. And I think that's important because we have this assumption that more trees are good. 
everybody's planting trees all the time as fast as they can. Companies are basing their whole sustainability strategy on more forests to offset their emissions. But if anything, what my book shows is that the idea of a right tree in the right place is absolutely critical because a tree on permafrost is a melting agent. It is a catalyst of warming. And that permafrost is going to release probably way more carbon dioxide and methane than that tree is ever going to sequester. So what I think the broad takeaway of that kind of counterintuitive experience is that Nature is a huge, complex system that we barely understand. And this idea that we can approach carbon accounting as a kind of ledger, and then we can see it in financial terms, that we can, you know, we can use up this amount of budget and we can offset it with this amount of trees, is total nonsense because the earth is a living, breathing body. And if you put a body in a sauna for long enough, its functions are going to break down. And that's what's happening. It's no longer possible to say, well, actually, if we put this amount of energy into that body, we're going to get this amount of carbon or organic matter stored away as fat on that body, because that body is sweating like nobody's business. And it's actually becoming emaciated the longer it stays in that sauna. So for me, I came away thinking, you know, net zero is utter nonsense. The whole concept of net anything is nonsense. This is a complicated system. The feedbacks between the ice and the forest and the atmospheric gas exchange and the ocean currents is so complicated that the best thing we can do is protect that as much as possible and recalibrate our relationship with the natural world. We need to be I mean, I'm getting on my soapbox now, but... But it's interesting though, isn't it? Because the complexity of nature is needed for the stability. They go hand in hand. But if you're a government and you've got to do offsetting or you're a company that's polluting, offset carbon, to come up with some sort of formula, I know the government are working on it, particularly when it comes to paying farmers for environmental benefits of what the value of an oak tree is or what the value of a dragonfly is... It's in our nature as humans to try and do that, isn't it? Put something in a spreadsheet. And you're right, it is very complex. And you can't necessarily say that an oak tree here is worth X to the economy or X to sucking up carbon compared to an oak tree 100 miles down the road, different environmental situations, all this kind of stuff. But we do concentrate on planting trees radically. And I know a number of farmers in your part of the world that think putting trees on the uplands is crazy, where there's a unique environment, but covering it in forests seems madness. And there's lots of environmentalists out there saying we need to plant more and more trees everywhere. But you're right, it's the tree in the right place. We don't necessarily go on about saying we need to plant more marshland or you know, we need to create more estuaries or wetlands or we need more wildflower meadows. It is all about trees. The popular conversation is all about trees, yes, but I would agree with some of the farmers that you spoke to and also environmentalists elsewhere that's to say we need more wetlands, we do need more marshes, we need more hay meadows, we need all of those things, we need that richness. And I think what I discovered by looking back at the history of the tree line, but also the experience of these different groups living amongst the forest, is that Humans are actually engines of biodiversity. We have been up until a couple of hundred years ago, even in the UK, where we were clearing the forest, planting hedges, for example, the Gwent levels, which the Romans dammed and, and used to farm 
to irrigate water meadows and so on are super rich in biodiversity because it's that disturbance and the different patterns in the land which is what creates biodiversity a forest that is just simply static is actually not that biodiverse it gets more if you look at the anishinaabe who i stayed with in canada they burn the forest every 100 years and when they burn it first what comes back is some undergrowth and the whole layer of animals that rely on that particular undergrowth and you get the rabbits and the hares and so on and then other animals come in on top of that and then you get slightly bigger trees as they grow and then you get the moose and the elk and then on the tail of the moose and the elk come the wolves and then you get the bigger trees and so on so humans have actually been a very positive force for biodiversity and we need to i would say regain that kind of entanglement that kind of relationship with nature just to go back to your point about sort of human nature and spreadsheets i think it's the nature of the market economy to go for spreadsheets but actually if you only go back 100 years or 200 years but probably less than that you have societies which are based on fundamental respect for nature where some things are just off limits like you don't cut certain things down you don't fish at certain times of the year and i would argue for much stricter environmental regulations actually we build the economy within that we say these are the no go areas and we just have to cope within those limits rather than everything has a value and everything has to justify itself in economic terms i think we've got to actually get back some kind of notion of the sacred ready to pop the question the jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds, videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 53124 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You definitely then respect 
your natural heritage much more, wouldn't you? I know there used to be old laws in Australia because water such a premium that if you polluted a watercourse with pig manure, you had your house pulled down. So that just showed that just showed the consequence. And then I, I remember sort of talking to an old woodman and he was saying, oh no, you, you never burn elder. It screams and the witches come out. And it was like, there's all this sort of folklore, but understanding that, you know, we see elderberry as a bit of an invasive tree, but actually the blossoms are really important to pollinating insects. The berries are important for bird food. So all that kind of stuff of understanding how the natural system works and then the folklore that's built around it to protect it and what not to do and when you can go hunting, all that kind of stuff. We've lost all that. But when you look at farming as well, farming is always seen as such a destructive force when it comes to biodiversity. And there's good reasons for that. But actually, done in the right way, it's a massive positive force for biodiversity. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, I see that a lot in my day job. I'm trying to set up a college for regenerative cultures and economies, and farming is a big part of that. It's the way, yeah, it's the way we farm. And it's the way we manage things. And I think our laws need to play catch up a bit. We actually used to have really good discourse about environmental limits. For example, in the Roman times, you could get fined for wasting coppice. So if you cut wood, but you didn't use it, you were fined, which I think is fantastic. That's the sort of thing we should have again. I agree. I mean, I think there should be fines on food wastage. I try to implement it with my children. (laughs) But if you think about we we waste nearly half the food we produce and people go, oh, it's just a bit of, you know, carrot or whatever. But if you look at it globally, you think, well, actually, that's half the land. That's half the fertilizer. That's half the fuel. It's all these sorts of things. I think we need to bring those sort of things in. The other thing I want to talk to you about is that your book, you go into some amazing areas and you visit some incredible people. Siberia. What was that like? Because I've never been to Siberia. I think it's fascinating because the sheer size of the area. It's amazing. In fact, I felt I've never been agoraphobic before in my life, but walking out onto the tundra where you couldn't see the difference between the white sky and the white ground, and it felt like kind of swimming in milk and everything was the same color and it was minus 40 and you've got a balaclava on so actually breathing is a bit hard and you can't walk because you're also you're in a sort of down snowsuit well I was in a down snowsuit and yeah it felt like a bit being in space and very disorienting it's disorienting anyway but it was increasingly disorienting because of the changes to the environment so I was trying to get to a place called Arimas which is the most northerly trees on earth they're 72 degrees north and in order to get there I had to fly right up to the top of Krasnoyarsk Krai which is very nearly on the Arctic Ocean and then drive up a frozen river in this enormous kind of dune buggy for three days it's an awful polluting diesel machine and the two guys were driving it called Collier and Collier. And they were absolutely terrified every time, twice they stalled. And when they stalled, they got panicked and they restarted the engine as fast as they could. Because if the engine cools, you've got to basically light a bonfire under the engine block to get it going again. <laughs> so the engine was running for four days straight, apart from these two stall moments of stalling. But we did get there. We got to this most northerly tree line on Earth. And I had a very cynical translator who didn't believe in my project and doesn't really believe in in climate change. We got there and, and he was delighted because the trees there haven't moved for 20 years in this monitoring, scientific monitoring experience. And he said, look, you see, you see. 
But actually, because the temperature had gone up, it's now minus 40 instead of minus 60. So it's gone up a lot, but not enough to make the trees move. But then we went to see an ornithologist who said, well, actually, yes, the forest isn't moving, but all of the creatures that live in the forest are moving north. So all the birds, all of the animals are now being seen right up on the edge of the Arctic Ocean, as far as you can go on land, basically, before you get to the North Pole. Birds like hoopoos that should belong in the Black Sea are being seen that far north. Yeah, it was incredibly topsy-turvy to be up there and see what was happening, to kind of imagine all of that methane under the Arctic Ocean, which is locked away in the frozen seabed, not just permafrost on land, and to start seeing the bubbles in the ocean and realise, oh my God, you know, this is underway, you know, this is happening. Now, the permafrost is terrifying because I was talking to Alan Savory from the Savory Institute, and we were talking about climate change and the use of cattle and cattle, you know, everyone's saying the methane. I was saying, you know, but cows produce a lot of methane. Should we be worried about this? And he just said, listen, you need to think about the permafrost because with global warming, if the permafrost starts to defrost, because permafrost is basically an environment like a grassland that is covered in ice, isn't it? And, and it locks in a lot of the biological activity that's happened in the past. So be lots of CO2 and there's lots of methane. If that defrosts, that's thousands and thousands of years worth of methane is released all at once. And that is terrifying. Going back to what you said a minute ago about the chap that didn't believe in global warming. Isn't it funny why some people are so vehemently against it or they see others that are talking about global warming as like your naysayers, you're bringing everything down. It's like no one really wants to talk about global warming. It's an event that's happening. But there's so much staunch sort of opposition to it, which I think is crazy, absolutely crazy, because it's, it's a problem. Let's come up with solutions. Let's not fight over it. You can't make it disappear by just keep turning away. So do you find there's a lot of people that just don't believe your research? I haven't seen that. But what I do, what I have seen is this kind of emotional knee jerk reaction, which is just as you're saying, this kind of it's not true. It's all a plot to try and, and, I mean, my translator, Dimitri, said it's all a plot to undermine Russia's dominance in hydrocarbons. You're just trying to, basically, you're trying to attack our economic independence, which, of course, we are now trying to do <laughs> under different circumstances. But for him, it was disturbing a truth that he felt was important. And therefore, it was important for him to negate climate change. And I saw the same thing with the Sami. The Sami people with their reindeer said, well, climate change is just a plot from the Norwegian government to try and make us cull our reindeer so that we, you know, they want to bring us down economically. So they were seeing all these other things as a, because climate change was the kind of proximate cause of their demise, they needed to not to believe it. And I think on some level, we are all in denial, to be honest with you. And it is a really difficult, hard thing to contemplate that everything that human life is based on continuity, tradition and culture is based on continuity. And we are in the middle of a discontinuous moment. We are in the middle of a rupture where, you know, my kids are not going to have the same cultural frameworks and landmarks and seasons that I had. And already the limits of that language are becoming apparent when they talk about spring or they talk about daffodils and actually daffodils now are something associated with Christmas, not with Easter. 
So we are in the midst of a huge moment of change and our brains, I think I've mentioned this in the Scotland chapter, our imaginations are actually behind the reality. We're playing catch up all the time to try and come to terms with this new world that we're actually living in. So I think denial is not sort of an either or for me. It's kind of a continuum that we're all, we all have to struggle with all the time. We're always trying to grasp the new reality all the time. I'd see what you mean about continuity. And I think that is true in the short term. We like to know things that in society are going to be the same. You know, we, we live in this life that we're all very comfortable in. But we are always in flux as a species, though, aren't we? We change a lot and our societies change. We've gone through like the, the Roman Empire, then into the Dark Ages and all that kind of stuff. So I'm a firm believer of positivity because I think we can make a change and try to reverse things. So what can we do to reverse what's happening? And what can we learn from the people that you visited? Because a lot of powerful imagery has come from the sort of tropical zones where you've seen the spread of deserts and you've seen the loss of rainforests. And those indigenous people in those areas have come up with powerful imagery and banded together and say this has to come to an end. But what can we learn from the northern indigenous people? I think what we can learn from them is this amazing symbiotic relationship with the forest. The Sami have always lived between the tundra and the forest. And there's a, the old growth forests support the reindeer in the winter and the tundra supports them in the summer. The Nganasan people in Siberia were incredible foresters who always lived above the tree line but went back to the forest because they needed wood and, and other materials. You look at the indigenous stewards in North America and there are really modern operations of closed canopy forestry where they're getting massive harvests out of the forest without cutting all the trees down but by selectively logging individual trees over time. So there are some really amazing positive examples of living with nature and sustaining adequate standards of living without destroying our ecosystems. So I think that is an incredibly positive message that we can take away. And I think that's something that we all need to be adapting to. I think it goes back to something I said earlier about hard limits on the destruction of our habitat. There's nothing wrong with sort of consumption going down provided that the, the wealth that there is, is equitably distributed and that we do look after everybody equally. And I think that's what we need to aim for is a much lighter footprint, but hopefully a much more fair distribution. Mm. I mean, because everyone likes the, 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 the modern luxuries of life, but I think that has come at the expense of actually not even considering the, the natural environment. Yeah, it has. And I think so. I think what we need to do actually is reconnect a little bit all of those efforts to get kids out into the woods, to get forest school movements, to learn the names of all the trees which are producing the oxygen that we breathe. I think if we had ecology mainstreamed in the national curriculum, I think we'd have a much better chance of protecting forests of minimizing pollution and that kind of thing. I also think we need a very strong movement for much tougher environmental regulation, which should include all of the kind of pollution of carbon dioxide and, and so on associated with emissions and a political movement for a lot less consumption. I think it's not just about emissions, it's about consumption more broadly. So what 
some people call degrowth, where we say, well, actually, these sectors of the economy, we're going to put them out of commission. And these other sectors like renewable energy, and we, you know, we're going to expand. But at the moment, the political conversation is not mature enough. It's just uh, lots of mudslinging and vague targets. But I think that's where we've got to move towards. I don't think we're looking at the extinction of human life. As long as there are trees on the planet, there will be humans because we share the same climate niche. But we are looking at a radical reorganisation. And the sooner we get with the programme, the better. The point you made about having ecology in the curriculum, I think about my kids and they have sort of religious studies at school. And I'm thinking, well, it's good to understand about different belief systems and all the rest of it. But equally, why haven't we got natural history or why have we got ecology? And it is crazy because the basic understanding of how systems work, I mean, kids learn about biology and everything else, but it should be a major part, should be a separate subject, all about the environment and what we can do and what we're responsible for. It should definitely be part of education. And why it isn't, I think is nuts, you know, crazy. And the people that, some of the people I met in the book, which if you read it, hopefully your listeners will have a, have a sense of that as well. The Koyukun, for example, in Alaska, have this whole notion of the world as alive and them within it. And they talk to the raven and they talk to the rocks and they have a, this intimate understanding of how nature functions and their, their reliance on it. And it, I think if you understand, then you're much more likely to respect. In a way, that's, for me, religious studies should really probably start with that. It's, a, in a way, a big, a big chunk of the timetable that if you braided the idea of the sort of sacredness of earth with other religions and, and, and talked about that, you might be getting somewhere. Tell me, because you've moved into education yourself, because you have established the Black Mountains College. Yes, that's where I am here in Wales at the moment. And the college was really a response to the research of the book. It was this growing realization that we're not ready and that we need new leaders, we need new skills, we need to look at nature in different ways. As we just discussed, we need to mainstream ecology. So the college tries to do that through short courses, through vocational programs, teaching kind of ancient and modern skills that I think we're going to need in the future. And we're developing a degree program with Cardiff Metropolitan University, which is a kind of interdisciplinary climate adaptation Bachelor of Arts. Well, that's fantastic. That is amazing. So journalist, author, and now, you know, someone who runs a college. <laughs> a little a bit unconventional, but yes, yeah, sort of basically following my nose, really. I wanted to go to Africa as an 18-year-old to get far away from the small town I grew up in. And then that led me to, you know, politics and human rights. And that sort of got me into climate change, back to the Arctic. And now trying to do my bit here, really. But yes, I mean, the college is a joint effort with an awful lot of other people. Our website is blackmountainscollege.uk. And we are actually, at some point, once I get launched and get enough money in the door, we'll probably be having a, an academic director who's not me, who has a better sense of what, what running a college does involve. It's really important because those education side of stuff of getting people involved in the environment to understand how communities can work together and be profitable but working with nature is so important it's it's the only way forward but when it comes to trees I'm a big believer that everybody at some point should plant a tree I think it's important thing to do but also it's a lovely thing to do I love the element of legacy and if someone 
that we've known dies or if there is a birth I often send people trees to plant and because when I've planted trees and I look back and go god that oak I can just about put my hands around the trunk now and it's a great marker of your time and time spent as well and I love the element of planting trees but when it comes to trees and obviously you've seen a lot of trees what's your favorite tree? (laughs) I think my favorite tree is the Scots pine And that's for a couple of reasons. It's in Wales here on the west coast of Wales. The Celts used to plant Scots pines on the headlands as markers so that they would remember particular places and particular inlets. And the drovers used to plant Scots pines on all the mountains here so that they would mark the way for driving their livestock to market. But the other reason is that the Great Caledonian Forest in Scotland, which is there's hardly any left, but once upon a time it was a pine forest. One of the things that I discovered in my research, which I thought was fascinating, was that actually the pine is a weed which was brought to the British Isles by the Celts from they'd done DNA analysis and realized that the root of the Scottish pine forest was Portugal. So the Celts brought pines, they brought the habitat with them basically up the coast. And then the pine outcompeted the oak, which was the traditional tree here 6,000 years ago before the Celts came. So the fact that humans have this ability to influence ecosystems, I think, is a lovely idea that we're not just ecocidal maniacs. We can have the ability to have a really positive effect. So, yes, I would say plant trees and look at the example of what the Celts did and we should plant more and aim for that uh, legacy as well. I love that sort of link. And I think everyone should have a favourite tree. I, as a kid, was obsessed with monkey puzzle trees because I just tried to imagine a monkey trying to climb up this tree all the time and going, what's a monkey puzzle tree? And it's weird looking. But I think the oak has got to be a fantastic tree because it's part of our heritage and it's been amazing for building barns. There's a woodland not far from me, next county in Norfolk, and it was planted by Nelson for the Navy. And of course, by the time the trees were ready to harvest, the Navy had moved into steel ships and there's all these ginormous oaks left that is this old naval past. But also I love the oak because of the acorns and I keep pigs. And pigs love acorns. And there's that lovely connection with having pigs in a woodland. Yeah, regenerative effect of pigs in a woodland, if managed in the right way. But trees are part of our life. We've divorced ourselves slightly from them. We know the importance ecologically, but we need to get back into the groove with trees again. Yes, I would wholeheartedly agree. And I should say, you know, although the right tree in the right place, the Arctic is not the right place for more trees. Where we are in temperate climates, there's plenty of space for more trees. And we, you know, Britain used to be a boreal nation, used to be, you know, completely covered. So there's no reason why we couldn't get some of that back. Listen, Ben, it's been absolutely fascinating. Love your book and good luck with the college. I might even enrol myself. Yeah, come along. Come along. We've got short courses this summer, all kinds of stuff. Have a look. (laughs) Thanks very much for having me on the show. Brilliant. You take care. All the best. there we go that was the lovely ben rawlands now the book is fascinating grab a copy it's called the tree line also check out his wonderful black mountains college he's a real inspiration he's doing great things and you know plant trees get out there and plant them but also the understanding of 
ever-changing climate has a massive effect on our flora and fauna. And trees moving to northerly climes that they weren't growing before is a real indicator of something's wrong. But as I say, get the book, it's a fascinating read. And hopefully, I'll see all you guys back on the farm for another episode of On Jimmy's Farm. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.